From To the Best of Our Knowledge and PRI, Public Radio International, a special hour on the writer David Foster Wallace. I'm Tim Fleming. David Foster Wallace changed the landscape of American letters. His novels dissect our media-saturated culture in unflinching detail, and his essays are often passed from person to person along with the words, you have to read this. He became a literary rock star while still in his early 30s for the sprawling novel Infinite Jest, which introduced the world to his looping, verbose, cerebral style. Time magazine later included it on its list of the all-time 100 greatest novels, When Wallace committed suicide in September of 2008, the Internet exploded with tributes, memories, and general mourning that might have surprised you if you weren't paying attention to his career all along. Today, we celebrate the life and work of David Foster Wallace. The thing about David is, after you've read his books, or his nonfiction, or his fiction, you'll sort of go around the world looking a little bit at the world through his eyes. He was the greatest writer of dialogue that there was. Nobody else rendered the spoken speech of Americans the way he did. He actually made you love the way Americans talked. Infinite Jest, when it arrived, made a gigantic impression. And then getting to see those chapters as he brought them in was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had as an editor. He had lost 70 pounds in a year. He hadn't been sleeping. His parents came out to be with him about a month before he died. He was sitting on the floor. You know, he wouldn't leave the house. He was afraid that his students would see him, his father said, as if, as if the students would do anything but give him a hug. I can still hear his voice in my head, not in a scary, mentally ill kind of way, but he had a very distinctive, soft, lovely voice. And whenever he'd call me on the phone, he'd say, Hey, Aim. And once in a while, i just hear that. My name is Laura Miller, and I am the book critic for Salon.com. David Foster Wallace was the most important writer of his time because he tried harder than anybody else, really, to figure out what it meant to live in a world where we are so conscious of how we appear to other people that we almost lose the ability to be ourselves. That was really the central theme of his work, this quest for some kind of authenticity of the self. And one of the hardest things for contemporary fiction writers to do is write in a meaningful way about living in a society that's completely saturated by media and where television and the internet and other forms of broadcast media are so much more powerful of a presence in people's lives than the written word. And David Foster Wallace was willing to really tackle that head on. And I always felt that David Wallace's work made me work harder and brought out the best in me as a reader and as a critic more than any other writer whose work I have ever written about. Laura Miller is the book critic at Salon.com. After David Foster Wallace's death in 2008, reports started emerging about a final, unfinished novel. It was found in Wallace's garage and workspace in Claremont, California. The novel is called The Pale King. Journalist D.T. Max wrote about Wallace's creative struggles with The Pale King in The New Yorker. He told Steve Paulson that the novel explored a long-time preoccupation for Wallace. Boredom. Its real subject is how we can live a fulfilled life without excessive stimulation or how we can sort of break through our idea of what boredom is to find contentment and mindfulness. He centers the book on a group of IRS agents working at an IRS center in Peoria, Illinois. And he was going to do this whole big novel on the subject of boredom. Yeah, I mean, he he more than was going to. I mean, he had it. It's hard to know exactly how far he got, but he had the book very well underway at the time of his death. I mean, I imagine he'd written a draft, and there were many parts of the book that I think he'd written and rewritten over and over, which was his style of composition. I think that what he had hoped for, which he may not quite have gotten finished, was to put all of these. He basically created these portraits of these IRS agents 
each of whom had a sort of different relationship to their work, and he took it as kind of a given that the work of the IRS agents was surpassingly boring. And in a way, he chose the IRS precisely because their work was so incredibly boring. You know, he basically created these characters, each of whom sort of came up against the challenge of the extraordinary boredom of their job and either surmounted it or was crushed by it. So, for instance, there's one character in the novel who has a secret kind of mantra, a series of numbers he repeats to himself. And by repeating these numbers over and over, he achieves mindfulness. There's another character who actually <laughs> levitates. Yeah, he, yeah, he comes... <laughs> He rises off the ground when he's sort of in the moment, when he's fully in the moment working on the tax forms, you know, on the returns that we all send in. Now, this writing this book, the book that has yet to come out that will be published in unfinished form, seemed to have tortured him in some way. He just had a tremendous amount of difficulty finishing it and even working on it. Why do you think this was so difficult? I think there's a bunch of reasons why, why it was so difficult. One... He set himself an extremely hard task. Fiction can be any number of different things, as we all know, but to write fiction about boredom is really tricky. Then he had this monkey on his back. He had begun to believe that he had outgrown his style, that his style had become a cliché, that other people had appropriated it. Critics were waiting in the wings for him to trot out his style yet again, to sort of shoot him dead on the spot. So he was trying to write a book about boredom, which didn't use the style that he had kind of... I mean, it was the style that he had both made great and that had made him great. But what's so striking about the story is that there were so many people out there who thought David Foster Wallace was the best writer of his generation. They would have loved to see more of what he had written in the past. They would have liked to see a, a, a new kind of infinite jest, and yet he himself seems to have rejected that earlier kind of writing that had made him famous. I, I think that that's a very common problem for artists. You know, they always want you to play Freebird again. You know, he was done. He he was moving on. He had to find a new, a new style. I think also David was incredibly self-critical. He was really a guy who wasn't satisfied with any of his work. I mean, there were moments when he knew that he'd done pretty good work, but he was never truly satisfied. And so I think it was really painful for him to imagine that he would be writing the same way at 45 as he had been writing when he was 25. There was one area of his writing that didn't seem to cause much angst, and that was his nonfiction. And and a lot of people know David Foster Wallace mainly through his essays. For instance, uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which was about his experience on a luxury cruise. And I guess I'm curious, were the essays a way for him to escape the demands of fiction? You know, I, I think he began his nonfiction writing. I remember seeing this in the letter that he'd written to somebody. He began his nonfiction writing really just to make money in the early 90s when he was in the midst of this, you know, endless slog through infinite jest and he really didn't have any other income. And he grew to like it. I mean, he did. He, he grew to really like writing nonfiction. The piece that you referred to, which is the piece on the cruise ship called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. And this is the story of David who goes on something like a Carnival Princess cruise line around the Caribbean. It was the perfect place for him to sort of show us that this country is at once over-entertained and sad because, you know, there's no place that's more over-entertaining and sadder than a cruise ship. And, you know, he does an amazing job with it. I mean, it's extraordinary. Now, David Foster Wallace obviously suffered from crippling depression. He apparently was not on medication by the time he died. I mean, they, they, he didn't have the right medication. And it can be a bad idea to play psychiatrist. But let me do that for a moment. Um, do you think one reason he committed suicide was because he was in a state of despair about his own writing? I do. I think that what happened is a little less direct than that, though. I think that he was very upset with his inability to get out of his old style. And for that reason, he went off of an antidepressant he'd been taking basically for his entire writing career called Nardle, which made him feel distanced from the world. He wasn't really sure what he was seeing, was what was happening, and he just wasn't feeling that connected. So... He went off of Nardal also because it's a hard drug to tolerate and because it's the kind of drug that, you know, if you tell someone you've been on Nardal for 20 years, like people go, really? You know, that's supposed to be a short-term drug. So he probably had to endure that for years. But I think that, you know, he was a writer in his bones. I mean, that's what he lived to do. And, and I think that once he made the decision to go off Nardal, he never really stabilized. Again, I mean, he had some good periods. He went off Nardal about a year before he committed suicide. 
during that period, that last year, you know, he didn't really approach the novel. I don't think he did any work on the novel during that time. And so it's not as if I don't believe, you know, on Tuesday he looked at the manuscript and decided that he was never going to finish it. So on Thursday, you know, he made the decision to kill himself. I, I don't think it happened that way. I think that also once he went off the Nardle, he was in such extraordinary pain. Depression for David was not, and he wrote this, I mean, it was not, you know, the sort of wistful, I can't get out of bed today depression, or even, you know, profound sadness, a very aggressive kind of depression. It was, it was really almost like his body was under physical attack. The thing I'm not saying is that, you know, the week before he killed himself, he was thinking about how badly the novel had come out. I, I don't think he had enough. I think he was too busy trying to survive at that point. That would be my guess, because the depression was so stunningly intense and so brutal physically to him. I mean, it was really more like being beaten constantly, you know, in every atom of his body, rather than what most of us probably think of as depression, even severe depression. You know, if you can ask the question another way, you say, well, if The Pale King had been going along well, would David Foster Wallace be alive today? And my strong belief is yes. D.T. Max wrote the article, The Unfinished, David Foster Wallace Struggles to Surpass Infinite Jest, for The New Yorker magazine. He's also author of the book, The Family That Couldn't Sleep. Over the years, we, uh, to the best of our knowledge, interviewed David Foster Wallace three times. The last time was in 2004, right after the publication of his short story collection, Oblivion. In that interview, Wallace told Steve Paulson he was grappling with the problem of how to write about our media-saturated world. I know that when I was in graduate school, those of us who wrote very much about what used to be called pop culture or advertising or television were really scorned by our older professors who saw that stuff as kind of vapid and banal. And I remember it was a really big source of conflict because in lots of ways we just didn't get what they were saying. I mean, this was our world and our reality the same way, you know, the Romantics world was trees and babbling brooks and and mountains and blue skies. Isn't that also complicated, though, because the danger of writing about, I don't know, what you call mass culture or pop culture is that it's going to seem shallow. In fact, you you wrote an essay about this some years back about the risk of, of just being clever. There's the danger of being sucked into it and simply trying, for instance, to do something that seems very hip and clever and thinking the job has been done then. I've certainly done stuff like that and realized only later with horror that what I did was in fact just kind of regurgitated the same stuff that I've been hearing since I was four or five. There's another side to it, though, is that I think at least for people like me, I'm 42 and I grew up, I don't know how many after-school specials and Hallmark Network things <laughs> I've seen. A lot of, a lot of what's quote-unquote realistic, conventionally realistic, ends up seeming hokey to me. The resolutions seem contrived. Everything seems a little too convenient. And the ultimate goal of it is to sell me something. I mentioned this essay that you wrote, I think it was back in 1993, about what various fiction writers are up to. And one point you made is that irony tyrannizes us. The implicit message of irony is, I don't really mean what I'm saying. And you went on to suggest that the next generation of rebel writers might ditch irony in favor of sincerity, and I I think I'm quoting here, who treat plain old untrendy human troubles and emotions with reverence and conviction, who eschew self-consciousness and hip fatigue. And I guess, yeah. <laughs> is is that a critique of your own kind of writing? I don't know that it's that. I mean, the thing even sounds dated to me now. You want your art to be hip and seem cool to people, but a great deal of what passes for hip or cool is now highly, highly commercially driven. Some of it, I think, is important art. I think The Simpsons is important art. On the other hand, it's also, in my opinion, relentlessly corrosive to the soul and everything is parodied and everything is ridiculous. Maybe I'm old, but for my part, I can be steeped in about an hour of it. And then I sort of have to walk away and look at a flower or something. If there's something to be talked about, that thing is this weird conflict between what my girlfriend calls the inner sap, you know, the, the part of us that can really 
wholeheartedly weep at stuff. And the part of us that has to live in a world of smart, jaded, sophisticated people and wants very much to be taken seriously by those people. That's an excerpt of David Foster Wallace's interview with Steve Paulson in 2004. You can hear much more of the interview on our website at ttbook.org slash David Foster Wallace. Coming up, editor Michael Peach on the experience of getting Wallace's unfinished novel ready for publication and an exclusive reading from The Pale King. I'm Jim Fleming. This is a special hour on the writer David Foster Wallace from To the Best of Our Knowledge and PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lev Grossman, the book critic for Time magazine. There's an old joke that Woody Allen used to tell about how he cheated on his philosophy exam. He gazed into the soul of the boy next to him. That's what David Foster Wallace did. He gazed into everybody's soul. When you read his writing, you thought this is a person who knows everything. And he was the greatest writer of dialogue that there was. Nobody else rendered the spoken speech of Americans the way he did. Nobody rendered it as accurately, as lovingly, as funnily, as hilariously as Wallace. He actually made you love the way Americans talked, which is not an easy thing to do. But more than that, in a strange way, he took that language into himself. He was a ventriloquist who he could take on any voice. And I think he showed us the corruption of the language around us by reproducing it. He drew it into himself, and somehow he was able to sort of tolerate its sickness and then reproduce it on the page so that we could really look at it and see what was wrong with it. That must have taken an incredible strength, an incredible power to kind of confront what was wrong with our culture. And um, it's astounding that he did that. And having seen him do it, we all saw him do it. It was as if he could do anything and uh, endure anything. It turns out that he couldn't. But I think we should all forgive ourselves for thinking he could. Time magazine's book critic, Lev Grossman. Back in 1996, we interviewed David Foster Wallace after his breakthrough novel, Infinite Jest, came out. It was a huge, sprawling book with various storylines, including a movie so entertaining that it leaves you helpless to do anything but watch it while you die of dehydration. And we discovered that Wallace wasn't only a huge literary talent— He was a prophetic voice for our time. Here are a few excerpts from that interview. I think the standard agenda of any piece of entertainment is to be as entertaining as possible. The problem with the movie Infinite Jest is that it's it's lethally entertaining, meaning it's watching it is so much more fun than doing anything else. Once somebody's watched it once, they pretty much have the spiritual energies of a moth and want to uh, do nothing more than watch it again and again and again until they die of probably dehydration. The book is meant to seem kind of surreal and outlandish at first and then in sort of a creepy way to seem not all that implausible. I mean, at some point in the next 10 or 15 years, we're going to have virtual reality pornography, which I would just invite you to think about, given the level of, you know, people whose lives are ruined just by addiction to sort of video peep show stores now. This stuff's going to get better and better and better and better, and it's not clear to me that that we as a culture are, are teaching ourselves or our children, you know, what we're going to say yes and no to. A lot of really ecstatic pleasures are linked, interestingly, sort of with death. I guess my point is right, right now and I think the next 15 or 20 years are going to be a very scary and, and sort of very exciting time when we have to sort of reevaluate our relationship to fun and pleasure and entertainment because it's going to get so good and so high pressure that we're going to have to forge some kind of, of attitude toward it that lets us live. The first leading cause of death among teenagers is suicide. Drug addiction, uh, sexual addiction, gambling addiction in this country is epidemic. The divorce rate is sky high. I mean, people in this country are lost and wandering around and 
looking to give themselves away to something that will maybe love them back as much as they love it. I know that in certain moods, um, when I'm tired or when I'm in some sort of pain, I want kind of infantile pleasures. I want to sit and receive pleasure without having to give anything or do anything. The question, I think, is, is, is sort of an individual one, is that what level of pain do we need to reach before we begin, begin to be willing to undertake the work of that reevaluation? This is a very long and fairly difficult book that I also wanted not to be a standard kind of avant-garde book, most of which right now I admire as a writer but just aren't very much fun to read. So I wanted it to be both long and difficult, but also to be fun enough, you know, so the reader wouldn't throw it at the wall on page 100. And I realize that sets up certain ironies, since the book itself is about entertainment. Excerpts from our 1996 interview with David Foster Wallace about his novel Infinite Jest. You can hear a reading from Infinite Jest on our website at ttbook.org slash David Foster Wallace. In 1996, Rolling Stone contributing editor David Lipsky spent a week with David Foster Wallace on the heels of his success with Infinite Jest. Later, after Wallace's suicide in 2008, Lipsky was assigned to cover the writer's life and death, and he wrote a remarkable article called The Lost Years and Last Days of David Foster Wallace. Lipsky later won a National Magazine Award for the piece. He had all the anxieties that someone has when their first book is coming out, that sense of achievement. Will it be as big as it seems to me? I've just spent a year on this. He'd written the first draft of the book, Broom of the System, during his senior year at Amherst. It came out very successful for a first novel. It was the lead title in a new imprint of paperbacks, I think, that HarperCollins was doing. In any event, you know, he'd been in organized education at that point for, what, 14, 15 years? You know, high school, college, graduate school. And he was having a hard time writing without a schedule. And he thought, oh... You know, I've always done writing as a sideline to academic work. I think I'll do great if I go back in an academic environment. So he joined. He got a full ride to get a Ph.D. in philosophy at Harvard, which he somehow thought could be a part-time thing. But, of course, the workload at Harvard was not at all what he expected. And, of course, he didn't then have the time in the evening to work on the writing that he'd hoped he would. No, exactly. So he refers to that when he and I were talking. He spoke of that as being the bleakest time of his life. Mm. He was drinking at that point a lot to sort of self-medicate and having a terrible time, I think, actually writing fiction. And so that was how he ended up checking himself into the Harvard Student Health Center saying, look, I think there's a problem. I've been thinking about hurting myself. He ended up at McLean's, which has also been a host to Sylvia Plath and Robert Lowell and then was prescribed Nardole from then, I think, about November of 1989 on. And that did seem to do the trick. I mean, no chemical is perfect, but it did seem to give him what he needed in order to get back on track. Oh, yeah. You know, his first two books, Broom of the System and Girl with Curious Hair, both really strong. And then the stuff that he's famous for is stuff that he then, it had no negative effect I mean, I'll just speak as a reader and a great fan of his work. You know, I had read the first two books. You know, I was really looking forward to Infinite Jest. It was also great. I mean, it didn't, whatever chemical it had to counteract, the Nurdle seems to have counteracted that and given him, you know, what readers know of him is all from 1989 on, basically. And the problem that came up was his decision to go off the drug Nardle. What happened? He had been on Nardle for about 20 years. Taking Nardle wasn't perfect. And because David, when he was living out in California, was actually so very happy, right? He'd always wanted to be married. He'd made this great marriage. He had this great job at Pomona. You know, they'd made a chair for him. He was the Roy E. Disney, I think, professor of creative writing, which is funny for any reader of Infinite Jest because it's a subsidized academic chair. But he was incredibly happy. And so he thought now he'd eaten a meal that may have sort of catalyzed some of the... There are certain foods you can't eat if you're on Nardole. And so he'd had a meal that he thought might have interacted badly with the drug. But he took that as an opportunity to say, look, I've been on this drug for 20 years. I'm really happy. I'm strong now. I'd like to get off this drug. And it didn't work. And then after a year of trying almost every other antidepressant available, they tried to go back on the Nardole. And this is one of the great risks of going off a successful chemical agent like Nardole. It no longer worked. So I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't look at things like this is a story of genius gone bad or the candle that burns twice as bright lasts half as long. I think it's just a story about an incredibly confident and intelligent and vividly charming person who 
because of strength and optimism, made a mistake. As you write it, it, it sounds as though he really was trying to get through all of this. Looking back on it, do you feel differently about it? Well, he had given the drugs 15 or 16 months to work. This started in June of 07, and now it was mid-September of 08. Now, as someone who knew him a little and loved his work, of course I wish that he had given it five years to work, 10 years. I wish he'd given it an infinite number of years. But I think, too, I mean, he had dropped, he had lost 70 pounds in a year. He hadn't been sleeping. His parents came out to be with him about a month before he died. You know, he was sitting... He was sitting on the floor. You know, he wouldn't leave the house. He was afraid that his students would see him and see how he was. And one thing that really struck his father was his father said, as if, as if the students would do anything but give him a hug, you know. <laughs> and, I mean, if you've ever gone without sleep for even a few days, if you can imagine a, a summer of really no sleep or a year of on and off no sleep, you can imagine the situation that he was in. Yeah. Would he have been surprised, do you think, by the by the outpouring of, of affection for him, of admiration for him, of surprise that he was gone, that followed his death? You know, it didn't surprise, it didn't surprise me as a reader of him because everyone I know, it was like maybe it's one of those things that, that's so, so much a given that it's not really a secret. But uh, I think for people what was very surprising, I think what really took the wind out of people was in fact not just how happy and funny he seems in his work, but how humane his sense of the world is, how humane his sense of life is. Because he's someone who's arguing always that, look, if you actually kind of learn to take some pleasure in the things that are particularly irritating or awful, and if you learn to kind of moderate the voice that Bellow talks about inside you that says, I want, I want, then in fact life can become this incredibly funny, sharp, alive thing. And that was what people, that's what a lot of people took from his work. I mean, it's an incredibly lively body of work. And so to have the author of that body of work suddenly dead by their own hand, I think, is part of what was incredibly stunning to people. David Lipsky is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and the author of the article The Lost Years and Last Days of David Foster Wallace and the book Absolutely American. Michael Peach was David Foster Wallace's editor since the early 90s. Together, they worked on some of Wallace's best-known books, like Infinite Jest, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, and Consider the Lobster. Peach is executive vice president and publisher of Little Brown and Company. He's currently at work editing Wallace's unfinished novel, The Pale King, which is scheduled to hit bookstores in the summer of 2010. He told Anne Strangechamps that Infinite Jest turned Wallace into a literary superstar. Infinite Jest was a long time in the making, and writers and reviewers who had been attracted to his work heard through the grapevine that he was working on something really big, really long, really ambitious, and so questions grew about it. Infinite Jest, when it arrived, made a gigantic impression. When we first signed a contract for the book, he had written about 250 pages of it. He had probably written much more, but he showed us the first 250 pages and said it's going to be very, very long, and it was already very, very long. So we did not know how much longer, how big this book was going to be. And then getting to see those chapters as he brought them in was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had as an editor. By all accounts, he was a perfectionist in terms of his writing. He was fiercely intelligent, as you said, also emotionally fragile. What did that mean in terms of your working relationship? He used the term thumb wrestling. He, he liked to sort of to comment reductio ad absurdum. He described the editorial process as thumb wrestling. That he had enormous ambition and a complex vision of how his work fit together as a whole that not many people could recognize or appreciate. Does that mean um, he'd quibble over every change he wanted to make? No, no, no. Quibbling was not in his vocabulary. He would. He graciously accepted a lot of suggestions. I have hundreds of pages of manuscript notes in which he has written in the margin, you know, my canines are bared over this one, meaning I'm not, <laughs> I'm not letting go of this one. But note that the previous 11 I've given into completely. 
I think what he looked for in the editorial relationship was probably more than anything someone who could give him a sense of when the pacing was effective, when the long, long elaborate sections he was developing sometimes felt like they could overwhelm the book as a whole and make people just lose their patience. So I, I think that something I was able to provide him was the voice of a reader who was extremely patient with him, and even I could say, you know what, I don't think many people are going to scale this wall with you. You've taken on the task of editing his unfinished novel, Pale King. You went to pick it up at his house, right? It was some weeks after he died that his agent went into his office with his widow, Karen Green, and called me to say that she had found a manuscript, a substantial stack of pages, on his desk. And they invited me to come there to to begin reading them and to look at everything, the papers he had left behind. And there was an enormous, enormous amount of of work that he had done on a novel which was called The Pale King. Is it hard to work on a book like this that's... Um so it must be so emotionally loaded, so personal for you? Or when you're working, are you kind of able to put that aside and, and just focus on the prose? When I first sat down in front of this, this stack of pages, I, it was, uh, you know, his death was recent, and, and I, was still, I was still grieving and expected this to be a grievous experience. And in fact, the opposite happened. But as soon as I began reading, I was happy because I was in his presence again. It was something he had made that I'd never seen before. It was thrilling. And for the duration of reading any part of, part of it, I, I disappeared in it as one disappears into a written work. So it, it actually was uh, an experience of almost of joy to, to read this and, and to, to, to see what he'd been working on, to understand the challenge he'd given himself, to see what great, what huge accomplishments he had made. So it, it's, uh, it's actually been a work in which I've been taking. It's horribly sad that he's gone. But working on this book actually is, is, uh, it is a sad delight. It's very exciting work. Michael Peach has edited David Foster Wallace since the early 90s. He is executive vice president and publisher at Little Brown and Company and is currently editing Wallace's unfinished novel, The Pale King. He talked with Anne Strangeships. Peach wanted to share some of the delight he's found in Wallace's final written words, so he's given us exclusive rights to broadcast this passage from The Pale King. It's about a girl named Peoria, who's now grown up and works for the IRS. This is the story of her childhood with a mother who has been in and out of mental institutions and has a habit of forming relationships with unsavory men. The mother's relational skills being indifferent to this degree since the period of clinical confinement in University City, Missouri, wherein the mother had been denied visits for 18 business days, and the girl had evaded family services during this period and slept in an abandoned Dodge vehicle whose doors could be secured with coat hangers twisted just so. The longest time she'd ever subsisted wholly on shoplifted food was eight days. Not more than a competent shoplifter. Their time at Moab, Utah, an associate once said that her pockets had no imagination and was soon thereafter pinched and made to spear litter by the highway, as she and the mother had passed in the converted camper driven by Kick, the seller of pyrite and self-made arrowheads, around whom the mother said not ever one word but sat before the radio painting each nail a different color, and who had once punched her stomach so hard she saw colors and smelled up close the carpet's grit base and could hear what her mother then did to distract Kick from further attentions to this girl with the mouth on her. This being also how she learned to cut a brake line so the failure would be delayed until such time as the depth of the cut determined. At night, on the pallet in the ruddled glow, she dreamt also of a bench by a pond and the somnolent mutter of ducks, while the girl held the string of something that floated above with a painted face, a kite or balloon of another girl she would never see or know of. It was actress Carrie Coon reading an excerpt from David Foster Wallace's unfinished novel, The Pale King. It's to be published in the summer of 2010. Coming up, we talk with David's sister, Amy Wallace Havens, and hear exclusive audio from his celebrated commencement speech, recently published under the title This is Water, I'm Jim Fleming. This is a special hour on David Foster Wallace from To the Best of Our Knowledge and PRI.
Public Radio International. Some of the people who call David Foster Wallace their favorite writer have never read his fiction. Wallace's essay, called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, ran originally in Harper's Magazine under a different title and has enjoyed a cult following ever since. In 1997, Steve Paulson interviewed him about the essay, which tells the story of Wallace's experience as a passenger aboard a luxury cruise on the Caribbean. Here's Wallace reading a bit of his essay. I have seen a lot of really big white ships. I have seen schools of little fish with fins that glow. I have seen a toupee on a 13-year-old boy. The glowing fish like to swarm between our hull and the cement of the pier whenever we docked. I have seen the north coast of Jamaica. I have seen and smelled all 145 cats inside the Ernest Hemingway residence in Key West, Florida. I now know the difference between straight bingo and prizo and what it is when a bingo jackpot, quote, snowballs. I have seen camcorders that practically required a dolly. I've seen fluorescent luggage and fluorescent sunglasses and fluorescent pince-nez and over 20 different makes of rubber thong. I have heard steel drums and eaten conch fritters and watched women in silver lame projectile vomit inside a glass elevator. I have pointed rhythmically at the ceiling to the 2-4 beat of the exact same disco music I hated pointing at the ceiling to in 1977. This doesn't exactly sound like a fun experience, uh, was it? It was an experience where you were so relentlessly bombarded by the attentions of people whose high-paid job was to make sure you were having fun that to say whether it was fun or not, it ends up becoming meaningless. It was fun with a capital F in ITAL with quotes around it, and uh, it was kind of crazy-making. I should also add, I went on this thing by myself, and I and a very troubled man who was surgically attached to a camcorder... (laughs) were the only two people on this cruise who were not there as part of a couple. And I think it would have been very different for me if I'd had someone to, quote-unquote, share the experience with. Well, give me a sense of the luxury on a cruise like this. How, How far does it go? Well, this is sort of the fantasy vacation. And what it promises you is... You're not going to have any problems on this. I mean, it got to, you know, you're sunning. You're sunning in a chair, but it's not a regular chair at a pool. It's a specially designed chair with a special material that absorbs your perspiration as you're perspiring so you don't get those hideous, you know, those sounds when you sweat on a plastic lounge chair and then shit. You don't get that. They're incredible. They're towels that you, you know, want to have personal relationships with, and they're all stacked, you know, near this towel bin, and you don't have to get the towel. A swarthy person brings the towel to you. It ends up being sort of like staying with, you know, the over-solicitous host who wants to do absolutely everything for you, and you end up in these really Abbott and Costello, um, you know, do you carry your own tray in the cafeteria, or do you let this guy who's 80 years old and clearly has terrible (laughs) arthritis carry your tray for you? Well, you feel horribly guilty if you let him carry the tray, but if you carry your own tray, it turns out he gets in trouble for having let you carry his tray. I mean, it was a nightmare of a very particular sort. David Foster Wallace, from an interview with Steve Paulson about his book, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, from 1997. You can hear more of that interview on our website at ttbook.org slash David Foster Wallace. If he went to a party, he'd take a book with him. He would never use an ATM machine because he didn't get it. But he was probably the best listener I have ever met in my life. He loved to sit down and talk to people about anything. That's Amy Wallace Havens describing her brother, David Foster Wallace. She remembers her brother as immensely bright, funny, and courageous. She told Anne Strangechamps about what life without her brother is like and their childhood together growing up in Illinois. He was sort of benevolently sadistic, if that makes any sense at all. He very much enjoyed figuratively pulling my wings off and then watching what happened. 
he knew every button to push to make me hysterical. He was, you know, two years older and that much smarter, and he was always a lot bigger than I was. Probably the the funniest thing that, that he did when he was a kid, during the long, gray, boring winters when there just isn't that much to do, once in a while he would decide that that day he wasn't going to be David, he was going to be Captain Flem and his sidekick, Goat Bile. And he would be both of them at once. And I don't really remember what their purpose was or what if they had superpowers <laughs> or what they actually did. But I can still, you know, shudder thinking I used to beg my brother to be allowed to be goat bile on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon. And I, I wasn't worthy. He would do them both himself. So your brother had his first brush with depression when he was still living at home. Do you remember that time? Yes, yes, I do. He had left for college, and he came back his sophomore year in the middle of the year unexpectedly. And this just stunned all of us. We had absolutely no idea what he was going through and what he was struggling with. And that was a very memorable and difficult time. That must have been really hard for you as as little sister to see your big brother come home like that. It was really scary because he'd always been big and strong and he could do anything. But I do remember when he came back from Amherst in the middle of the year, we would sit in his bedroom when I got home from school. And sometimes he would get in my mom or dad's car and just drive around and try to find me and give me a ride home. And then he would just talk about loneliness and wondering how people get up every day and function at the time. I think I was working at Baskin Robbins. And he said, how do you do that when somebody comes into the store and asks for an ice cream? How, how do you do that and not just want to run out the back door? It was very frightening to think that the depression could be so incredibly powerful. And then it took a while, but he had therapy and and medication and got markedly better. I know he had really, really rocky times throughout all those years. There were years that were good. I mean, he got, he got married and hmm. by all accounts had a really number of very stable, very happy years, which I think made all of his family and friends also very happy because it had taken him so long. What was David Foster Wallace as a happy and fulfilled family guy like? It was neat to see. He definitely found the person for him in Karen, and she got him on every level. She thought it was absolutely great that he dressed the way that he did. And it was nice, nice to see him so happy. And I think he finally felt like he he spent most of his life really not feeling like a grown-up. And marrying Karen... I think, soothed that element of him. So that the last year before his suicide sounds like things hit bottom again. The portrait that's kind of emerged of your brother is is of a very, very brave, courageous person who tried to endure what felt unendurable and who finally really just couldn't take it anymore. At least that's that's kind of how it's been reported. How would you tell it? That is exactly, that's, he was very brave. And he really did try so hard. When he, when he did die, there was not a minute that I thought that I was angry at him, or that if he'd only tried harder, I knew how hard he tried. <laughs> I need a minute. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah.
I just got a whole box of Kleenex brought to me. So, so we don't leave you with <laughs> you having to walk out there in tears. Um, when you remember him and, and, and you want to remember the good parts and not feel sad, you know, and, and just remember him with, with some lightness in your heart, what sort of things do you think of? Sometime in the 80s, we drove cross-country together. I was in school at Virginia at the time, and he was moving back to Tucson. And his radio was, was awful. It was an AM radio, and so we had this boom box with tapes in it. And we ran out of batteries at one point, and we were in Texas. And David didn't want to stop because we had to go at least 200 more miles before we could have dinner or whatever, you know, the fabulous prize was at the end there, and buy batteries. So he decided he was going to teach me to sing harmony, and I didn't want to learn how to sing harmony. And we were stuck in this tiny Volkswagen Rabbit in Texas as the sun was setting, and David had a lovely singing voice, and he was actually in the Glee Club at Amherst with Prince Albert of Monaco actually. little tidbit there. But so we're driving along and David say, no, really, Amy, it's you can learn how to do this and then we can just sing wonderful harmonies for the rest of the trip. And I said, I don't want to sing wonderful harmonies for the rest of the trip. I want to get batteries. You know, let's just stop at the, I, I see a store right there. No, no, no. When I go, ah, you go, ah. You know, and, and this went on for 200 miles. And I grudgingly tried to make the the reach the unlikely pitch he was expecting me to, to reach and sustain. And he did finally, thank God, give up on me. And I think he bought me a hostess cupcake when we finally got the batteries and apologized. But I just think about that. And that's just kind of David in a nutshell. I am tone deaf. I was never going to learn how to sing harmony in that car. And I was pissed off. I, I, didn't, I didn't want to, but I will never forget that. And whenever I, I start thinking, you know, oh, God, this is just so sad and this is so awful, I think of being in that Volkswagen Rabbit. And I think, you know, I will never, ever regret having David for a brother. And I've got wonderful memories and i can still i can still hear his voice in my head not in a scary mentally ill kind of way but he had a very distinctive soft lovely voice and whenever he'd call me on the phone he'd say hey aim and once in a while i just hear that and you know he's there That's Amy Wallace Havens talking with Anne Strainchamps about her brother, David Foster Wallace. For music, photos, and an unedited interview with Amy Wallace Havens, stop by our website. It's ttbook.org slash David Foster Wallace. In 2005, David Foster Wallace gave the commencement speech at Kenyon College in Ohio. An audience member later transcribed the speech from videotape, where it lived a second life on the Internet, until it was eventually published under the title This is Water. We leave you with this never-before-broadcast excerpt from that day, May 21, 2005. David Foster Wallace. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. 
On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom and the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. Audio from David Foster Wallace's commencement speech in 2005 at Kenyon College. The text is now published in book form as This is Water. I'm Jim Fleming. This special on David Foster Wallace was produced by, to the best of our knowledge, at the studios of Wisconsin Public Radio. You can buy a CD of the show by calling the radio store at 1-800-747-7444. This hour was produced by Veronica Rickert, with help from Madeline Mahon, Charles Monroe Kane, Mary Lou Finnegan, Doug Gordon, and Anne Strangechamps. Our technical director is Kirill Owen. Our executive producer is Steve Paulson. For more information on To the Best of Our Knowledge or this program, please go to our website at ttbook.org slash David Foster Wallace, where you will find extended uncut interviews and other material about David Foster Wallace. PRI Public Radio International.